Okay. Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 5. I'm going to look at a couple of verses and uh, be talking about Pharaoh's hard heart. Can I get these lights uh, up above here? That'll help me. Please. Thank you. Okay. It's the glasses do help, but the light really helps. Okay. How many of you have never been in an airplane flying? Leland? Eliana? Okay. They've never been in an airplane flying. And yeah, little, little Brennan. All right. Okay. So today, it's about gaining some perspective about this topic. We want to gain perspective. And I don't want to just take you on a plane ride. I want to take you in the United States U-2 spy plane. Have you ever seen that thing take off? It doesn't take off like a normal plane. It takes off. And its wingspan is bigger than most other planes. And so it doesn't go like this. It, it's like going up. And uh, I've seen that in person, you know, from, from the side angle down in Palmdale, California. There it goes. And it's not like any other plane. And, and what is nice about it is it gets up, 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 up much farther than Southwest Airline, much higher. And it has quite a perspective. And so I want us to understand that that's what we're trying to do here this morning is gain a perspective that we would rarely have. Because normally we're in a normal plane, just flying around. We can say, oh, there's the earth. There's, There's L.A. or there's San Francisco, whatever. And so this is going to take us um, even higher. Okay? So um, the normal mindset isn't going to accept a lot of things what I have to say today. The normal mindset isn't going to welcome it. So um, with that, we want to get started. And I will do my best to um, move along quickly. Um, I I put in here your outline notes Exodus 4 through 14 we're not going to cover everything in Exodus 4 through 14 but that's that's the framework of our message today is what happens what do we see in this section of chapters 4 through 14 covering the 10 plagues and the mass exodus out of Egypt And remember, Egypt at that time was probably one of the most powerful nations in the world, with Pharaoh being one of the greatest and strongest kings. By the way, most of you know, but some of you might not, Pharaoh was not his name. That was his title. Okay? And we think, oh, the central point was about nasty Pharaoh and bad Egypt and poor Israel. No. The central point of the story is what, class? God and His power. 
God in His sovereignty, okay, demonstrating His power and supremacy over specifically the gods of Egypt, one of which was who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered a god. Okay? And so God demonstrated His power with His great acts of judgments, His signs and wonders to rescue, save, and deliver His people out of slavery and bring them into the promised land. And we can say Exodus is an expression of God's divine power to save. All right? J. Sidlow Baxter made a comment, made, uh, wrote this in his commentary. He said this, <clears throat> the Exodus was designed to answer the question that Pharaoh asked. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so this ends up being a lesson to all men for all time. The lesson we learn about Pharaoh versus God. And what a silly way to say it. Pharaoh versus God. But that's point number one. The God of Israel versus the God of Egypt. Now we want to move quickly through this first point. But you can be, you know, if you need to review it, read chapter 3, 4, and 5 um, for this, this, uh, this part of the message. Letter A is about God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge. What he made clear ahead of time regarding Pharaoh. Turn back, if you're at Exodus um, chapter 5, we want to really start at Exodus chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. He's told Moses, he, he, you know, he's not, they're not in, in Egypt yet. He's still talking to Moses at the burning bush. And verse 19 says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. Remember, that's what the plague is. Strike. That's the idea of a plague. It's a strike against this people. Okay. And I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Okay. So that's the idea. You know, God, God knows ahead of time. It's not like he's puzzled about it. He knows ahead of time what Pharaoh's going to do. Then letter B, it's about God's power and protection. In this conflict between the God of Israel and the God of Egypt, God's power and protection is made clear. Letter B, turn over to chapter 4, 21. Verse 21 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Not just, he's, he's not going to let you go. Now God's saying, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, now th- this is, this is, uh, um, foundational here regarding Egypt. And regarding the book of Exodus, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That, that's not just a nice cute phrase. That's a statement of great possession of, of, you know, this is the, the firstborn son of the preeminence of him. 
And then what does he say in verse 23? And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, God came through with that promise in the 10th plague. That, that was, We'll be studying that in the next couple of weeks here. But what a, what a great conflict and controversy. Here's, here's the representative of the slave nation, Israel, Moses, standing before the greatest king in the world just about, and he's, he's going to threaten him. Can you imagine what Pharaoh is thinking? Well, we're going to find out. Here's letter C, Pharaoh's contempt. Now we turn to chapter 5, 1 and 2. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, now that statement is is coming with authority. Thus says the Lord. There's authority there. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I'm not going to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he has made his stand. Okay? He's not going to let them go. And it, it, I'm, I'm speculating, I realize, but again, it's, here's this powerful king, maybe even laughing under his breath or something. Like, what do you, you know, economically, um, reputationally, what do you think we're going to do? No, we're not going to let him go. So, it's kind of a ridiculous scenario for a mighty king like Pharaoh. And God intentionally takes what Pharaoh said in this very verse, intentionally takes it and answers the, the question, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? And God answers it with what? The ten plagues. God answers Pharaoh about, oh, eight times or so throughout these chapters, saying that you may know that I am the Lord. That That's said about eight different times throughout the, the chapters that we've been looking at. So he keeps coming back. God keeps coming back to this, saying that you may know that I am the Lord. So... That really follows the sequence of events specific to this conflict of God and Pharaoh. Number two, the key issues. There are three key issues that I want to touch on here under point number two. The key issues that we're dealing with in this conflict between God and Pharaoh is number one, the heart. Letter A, the heart. Letter B, the hardening, the hardening, and letter C, the purpose of God. So letter A, the heart. Let's begin with the definition. You know, we'd have our high school science students get up and say, it's that little muscle, right? That's the, that's the pumping, that, the, that's the heart. But the Bible's, um, you know, as we define it spiritually speaking, it's the core of our being, It's the real self, the real you. 
It's also the source of intellectual, uh, emotional, and moral activity. And also it's the seat of your will, of your desires. It's like your personal judgment seat inside where you, you make decisions. You, you call the shots, so to speak. So the heart is the sum total of these. The thought, the will, emotions, the essence of you as an individual. That's the heart when the Bible talks about the heart. So that's a definition kind of spread out like that. But let's think of a description. The Bible gives lots and lots of descriptions of the heart apart from God. The heart that is apart from God is deceitful. Jeremiah 17:9. Right? The heart is dead. Spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and verse 5. The heart is darkened. Spiritually darkened. Ephesians 4 verse 18. The heart is hardened. John chapter 12, 39 and 40. The heart is uh, unrepentant. There's And there are many others, you know, that we could say. Here's a... Biblical description of the heart apart from God. Um, it's really, I, I, I like this idea. It's the thr- we talked about this last week a bit. Um, it's the throne for self-affirmation. Where you just keep affirming yourself. And that's, it's like there's the, there's the throne. It, the heart is carnal. The heart is covetous. The heart is foolish and proud, rebellious, lustful. And we say, oh... Man, this is really negative stuff. And really, you know, that's not the way I see it. Now, what we're talking about here is the, the, it might not be exactly the, in these terms, but that's what's at the core. That's the seed of the heart apart from God. You might have a nice attitude, nice, you know, disposition, all that. But at the core, your heart is evil apart from God. Your heart is rebellious. It wants to do its own thing. And after all, you know, we, you know, we think from this perspective, it's like, what's the matter with taking a bite of, of a piece of fruit? It's not a big deal. Just take a bite of the fruit. And yet, what did that do to all of humanity? Just taking a bite of a piece of fruit, all of humanity falls into sin. And we know... It wasn't just a matter of a biting of a fruit. It was what's underneath, in the heart. It was rebellion against God. So, theologically speaking now about the heart, this is what's called total depravity. The total inability of man to please God. Now, we've gone through a series by Dr. Wayne Grudem in previous Sunday school time. And Dr. Wayne Grudem says this, because of Adam's sin nature, Adam was the one that bit the fruit along with Eve, his wife. We have a sin nature inherited from Adam. In our nature, we totally lack spiritual good before God. Every part affected by sin. In our actions, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. And he adds this question. If we have a total inability to do any spiritual good in God's sight, then do we still have any freedom of choice? That's what we're getting into here in this topic. And certainly we do. 
those who are outside of Christ still do make voluntary choices. That is, they decide what they want to do, then they do it. In this sense, there's still a kind of freedom in choices that people make. Yet because of their inability to do good and to escape from the fundamental rebellion against God and their fundamental preference for sin, unbelievers do not have freedom in the most important sense of freedom. That is the freedom to do right and to do what is pleasing to God. I realize that's a mouthful and a mindful but I hope you tracked along with that. It's very important that we do. Unbelievers do not have freedom in the most important sense of freedom. That is the freedom to do right and to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. So that's a, a quick rundown of man's heart, of your heart, if you are not a believer. And, you know, many of those little descriptions can pop up in you and me. We got to be on the alert regarding that. Okay. Number two, uh, point number two, letter B, the hardening, the hardening process. In the context of Exodus, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. No other way around it. He hardens his heart. It's mentioned 10 different times in Exodus. And as a consequence, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Did you see that? Here's in, it's in consequence to God doing it. And another way to say it is in, it's like in collaboration with God. God said, I'm going to harden his heart. And Pharaoh then starts acting in certain ways to show he's, he's going to maintain his stance. Okay. So it's mentioned, um, as a, a consequence of Pharaoh's hardened his own heart three times and six times it's mentioned kind of neutral pharaoh's heart was hardened okay and there's no subject mentioned when uh, in those six different times so there's this cause in pharaoh's heart to swell up with pride leading to a strong hard stubbornness an unyieldedness and not only in the book of exodus but in other passages we find that the Lord hardens the hearts of others. And if you want to, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Just if you want to write it down in your notes. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 30. Sion, the king of Heshbon, had his heart hardened by God. Um, the inhabitants of Gibeon, the Canaanites, uh, had their hearts hardened going up against the people of God. Actually, the children of Israel had their hearts hardened. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say specifically his heart was hardened, but in Daniel chapter 4, it's the outflow of that. He, he rose up, King Nebuchadnezzar rose up and said, Look at this beautiful kingdom. It is mine. I did it. And then what is he doing not that far off? He's uh, chewing on grass in the field as a madman. God allowed that. See, God takes the king's heart according to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the heart, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So especially regarding rulers, this is what God does. God intervenes with His will to accomplish His purpose for His glory. Okay? I believe another way 
in which God hardened Pharaoh's heart was this. God removed the restraints on Pharaoh. He removed restraints saying, okay, go and do, go and do. And what was he prone to do? Stand for his kingdom, establish his king, keep his kingdom going, maintain the power. Okay. So along with that, here's Pharaoh's practice of sin. Now we get into looking at him, watching him closely, and we see he's just continuing on saying, this is what I'm going to do. He had moments where he's like, he asked uh, Moses for intervention. Please take the, take, you know, take this away. Ask God to take it away. Then he says later, oh, I've sinned. And yet he comes back and again to the issue of, no, I'm not. No, I'm not going to budge. And finally he comes back to say, troops, let's get on the chariots. Let's go after him. He is sunk in his ways giving himself over more and more confidence in this throne of himself. And really, we understand from the scriptures that there is a hatred towards the concept of accountability with a God. We understand that. People will, if you get to talking to someone about the gospel and about God, judging sin people mock that and they keep on living saying i'm gonna do whatever i want to do i'm gonna live however i want to live i i'm the captain of my ship and that's a person hardening his own heart but maybe god already was hardening it so that's the norm with unbelievers they hate the thought of being accountable to god And the Bible, God and His Word, and the accountability or responsibility for sin is really a sick notion in the mind of unbelievers. And yet, Christian, you and I, we're called to that, to say, I want to be accountable to God. And we come together with one another to help each other remain accountable in our walk with the Lord. And those are good things. So hardening of the heart, this process of hardening, on our side of it, it, it's really about unbelief. That's where it starts. Unbelief, and the Bible says, you know, we're uh, the, the people apart from faith in Christ are spiritually blind. They cannot see. Uh, refusing to repent. And that refusing to repent sustains a deceitfulness and a pride in the person's heart. It's just more and more self-edifying. And that builds up pride. That gains momentum and it's very hard to break. You and I can't break it at all. If we're trying to talk to a friend or a loved one, you, you can't break that. That's the work of the Spirit of God to bring conviction of sin through the, the, the written revelation of the Word of God. Saying, God, here's God's law. In this Sunday school class this morning talked about it. It's a perfect law. You break it, you're guilty. Period. You're guilty. It's a perfect law. Rick was saying, not, even, not 
98% or 98 points or not even 99. Perfect. Perfect obedience to the perfect law. That ought to... God says, whoa, really? Yeah. And guess what Jesus accomplished? A perfect sacrifice. Because he lived a perfect life. Because he's perfect God. So, we keep in mind the elements are already in the heart. The chemical is already in the heart. Or the disease. It's already in the heart. It's not like you've got to go uh, to ISIS training over in some, you know, other country and get evil. <clears throat> and a lot of times we, we lift up Pharaoh along with, with uh, Hitler and Stalin saying, you know, these guys, they're really bad. I'm not that bad. I mean, look at them. <clears throat> Do you understand that Pharaoh's heart really pictures your heart and mine? Apart from Christ? Think about that. <clears throat> so, those, those are the, the points. Now we get to letter C under number two is God's purposes. God's purposes. It's revealed. God's purposes is revealed within these chapters. In chapters 4 through 14. In chapters 7, 1 through 6, it's about God's power. Um, chapter 10, 1 through 3, it's the spreading the word about God's work, giving testimony, telling your sons and your grandsons about God and who He is. Not just saying, it's a cute story, it's really neat because God won. No, it's got understanding behind it. Why? Because it points to the big picture of Jesus redeeming mankind Exodus 14, um, God will gain the glory and the victory over Pharaoh and his army. God's going to do it, and he did it. So, God's purposes. It's, all, it's not, again, we need to remember, there's, it's not some random thing happening. God planned this out. God foreknew it. He knew it ahead of time. Now, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, because here we find um, Paul writing and uh, dealing with many issues about here's salvation. And here's in this passage, 9, 10, and 11 is uh, regarding the salvation of the Jews. And it connects directly to our, our time this morning. You know, we stop and think... Um, was Pharaoh being used as a little puppet? I mean, that's what it comes across. When we stop and really think about it, um, it's like God's saying, Here, here's my little puppet. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to make him do what he doesn't want to do. Is that, is that how we think of it? And most of the time, that's what, how we think of it, about it. But look at Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, he says, by no means. And what he's come off of is that he chose Jacob over Esau. It's like, we look at that and we say, in our own perspective, in our own humanity, we say, that's not fair. So verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there 
injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Pharaoh, he continues on with his examples. Hey, let's talk about Pharaoh. And that's what he does here. He says to Moses in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on what? Human will. It depends not on running or exertion or effort by the human, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up. Okay? He allowed him to be king. Here he is. He's in the, he's in the, he's got the throne. He's got the headdress. He, he's the dude. I've raised him up for this. That I might show my power in you and that my name, the total sum of who God is, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's keep reading. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? There's the argument. Wait a minute. Why does God still find fault with who? Us. With everyone. If God's so strong and mighty and powerful, how come? I mean, why does he still find fault with us? And Paul, look at what he says. Verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, some people believe, some commentators believe that he's dealing with people that are skeptical, not asking an honest question. That he's really coming at the guys that are more skeptical in their arguments here. Okay? Who are you? Oh, man. But what's the point? What is he saying here? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for, for what? I hope you all get that. I think maybe one person mentioned it, but I hope we all understand that's what it's getting at is God's glory. Many times in our day and age, we've got Christians who are Coming, across, coming at this whole idea that it's about us. It's about us, isn't it? I mean, after all, God really loves us. I learned that in Sunday school. Jesus loves me. This I know. And that's true. And that's our only perspective. That's the only kind of way we're looking at the situation. But the more you are in the Bible, the more you read it, the more you recognize, wow, I'm way up high here. We're soaring in that U2 spy pl- we're way, whoa, we're way up here. And this is more than I understood. 
when you got saved, when you became a believer, you did not understand all the aspects of God's foreordination and God's predestination. You didn't get that all. When you first were a, a believer, what did you know? Jesus loves me, this I know for, the Bible tells me so. My sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. I want to rejoice in Him. Look at what He's done. I get it in certain ways. But if we're not careful, my, in my wanting to grow in the things of God, if I still have the idea and the perspective that it's about me, then I've got very limited vision. I've got very limited vision. Because it's not about me. Just like this story is not about Israel. It's not about how, what terrible conditions they were in. It's not about how terrible uh, Egyptians were and Pharaoh was. It's about God and His glory. And that's what it's pointing out. And tell your sons and your grandsons and your granddaughters, tell them about my name. All that God is, as much as we know. Pass the word on. Share it. So, in this passage in Romans 9, we see God is merciful, isn't He? We like that. I, I can't wrap my mind all the way around God hardens people's hearts. But is it in the Bible? Thank you. It's there. It's there. He is the potter. He, he molds and makes. Maybe he has to smash down again, whatever. But he's molding and making. He's the potter. If he wants to make one for dishonorable use, he will. He's God. He's creator. And what we have done, we've, we've brought him down to our level. Well, God did come. You say, yeah, God came. Jesus came. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we shape and mold God into what we want. So, how do we understand this? Does God use you and me as a puppet? How do I understand that? Do I have free will? Now I've just added about three hours to our sermon here. Do you have free will? This is one helpful way to try and understand this very controversial subject. And there might be holes that we can shoot in this. But here goes. You have free will. You you make free choices. All of us did this morning, right? But do you have free will that is ultimate self-determination? Ultimate self-determination. That's how we're trying to distinguish it. If God did harden Pharaoh's heart, is God, I'm sorry, is Pharaoh still morally responsible for his actions?
And what would we say? Yes, he is. Exodus 9, 34, he sinned again, is what the phrase says. He sinned. Pharaoh sinned again. It's clearly stated. When someone sins, God finds them responsible. Okay? Um, Jonah, Jonah demonstrated um, his choice, didn't he? Jonah, what did Jonah do? Jonah ran. (laughs) He demonstrated free choice. But God did what? God intervened. How how would you like that kind of intervention? And there you go, Jonah. That's my will for you. You better go. Here's, here's the thing. Here's why God doesn't give us that ultimate self-determination. You know why? Because you would not be saved. You would not be saved. Why? We already talked about why. Your heart is what? Apart from Christ, your heart is dead. Okay? You got a lot of dead rabbits on the road coming from here, from my house to here. And I could go say, oh, rabbit, please, you know, wake up. It's dead. I can kick it. I can throw another rock on it, but it's not going to respond. It's dead. God, God gives what? Life. God gives life. And that is in salvation. That's the term regeneration. You must be born again. You must be born again. Um, I don't know any one of you who chose to be born into this life. Did, did any of you girls choose? No one chose to be born again in that sense. Why? It gets back to, here's, here's another one. God's elect. God has elected whom he will. <laughs> I, it's like I go, whoa, hold up here. I can't understand. Yeah. Can anyone? It's God's choice. And it's about his, he's showing mercy to whom he will show mercy to. Okay. So let's understand that nobody could be saved if we had our own self-determining ultimate will. Nobody would choose God. Do you understand that? A a lot of Americans especially figure, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a good person. I I get it. Yeah, I'm going to choose God. But, you know, in the end... We don't have the perseverance. Even that, that's from God. Do you understand? All, all these good gifts are from God. Faith is a gift from God. You understand? Repentance is a gift from God. And so every day that I'm living with Woody on the throne, I'm demonstrating I've got my hard heart back in gear. You've got your heart back in gear. <laughs> 
So I get it. I understand this is a mystery. I don't know, you know, the theologians, I, I could keep quoting theologians, but um, even they still have their uh, disagreements and their different views. Let me read this. I'm not going to... I think this is my last quote from a theologian, okay? John Stott. John Stott wrote this. If God hardens some, he's not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he's not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in... Mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing that God's hand, nothing from God's hand but judgment. And that's where I, I I have a hard time understanding that, because I think I'm a good person in 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 the depths of my heart. I, I you know, apart from the teaching of the word, I think I'm a pretty good person. I don't treat anyone really badly. I don't, I'm not mean spirited. And so I don't think that I ought to deserve judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. Both mercy and judgment are fully compatible with his justice. And thus, we come to the... Yes, this is truly a mystery. It's hard to comprehend. And so we come to point number three, the key applications. Number one is God's work. We need to do well at understanding God's work. And we see in... In a small picture, the work of God in the book of Exodus, revealing his power for deliverance and Israel's redemption. And thus, it, it, in that, it reveals then, the Bible reveals a bigger picture. That is, salvation is of the Lord. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the Gospels of John, in the Gospels of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, look at verse 11. And we see here that Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Hard heart, hard heart situation. Verse 12, this is what we like. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. End of discussion, right? The sentence doesn't stop there. The sentence keeps going. Verse 13. Look at it. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Here in John chapter 1, turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Starting at verse 63, John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. 
the flesh is of no avail. We could read that about ten more times and repeat it again and again. The spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father, drawn by the Father. You've been shown God's mercy if you're a believer. You've received his amazing grace. It's because of his work. Then, letter B, God's word. Okay, salvation is of the Lord. Then letter B, God's word. It's the seed of God's truth. Here it is. Turn to Mark chapter 4. Go back uh, from John through Luke and back to Mark chapter 4. And you know, the things that Jesus taught, are they're just totally profound. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 14 through 20, we have the parable of the soils. You can look at it in Matthew chapter 13 also, but I, I was reading in Mark chapter 14. And he says uh, in verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That's on the rocky, on the side of the road. Okay? And the ones who are sown in the rocky ground, ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, no growth, no root, but they endure for a while, but then when tribulation, persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And other ones sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But, verse 20, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Listen, if you're a believer and you're struggling, it might very well be because of this issue, this problem. Your heart is like the thorny ground. What do you do? What are you going to do? Your heart is like the rocky ground. So, God, how do I get a a heart with good soil? Well, I have to ask Him. I need His help. And verse 20 shows us the key is hear the Word, not just be hearers, but accept the Word, receive it, be doers of the Word, and then what? Bear fruit. And the concept behind bear fruit is what? Is your life, is my life changed? Or is it, I'm just still kind of struggling with the same old stuff? It, I need to move on. I, if you want to talk about this with me this week, please call and let's set up a, a time and talk about this. Letter C is God's warnings. Growing Christians know and understand there is a constant need to soften our hearts because if not, the hardening will simply happen. The elements and the chemicals are there in my heart to bring about a hard heart situation. And so what do I do to keep 
softening my heart. What do you do to keep softening your heart? Because okay. without the, wa- the word, then my heart grows hard. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26 talks about the washing of the water of the word. That's the concept here behind what do we do if I've got a hard heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence or guard your hearts, for from it flow the springs of life. God's work is not merely to save you and bring you to heaven, but to sanctify you, and it starts within. It starts in your heart. And God calls us to live in such a way as to be different. Not to be like darkness, not to be like the world, but to be light. Be salt. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk in or as the Gentiles do. In the Notice it. In the futility of their mind. That's, that's where it's at. In how they're thinking. In their perspective. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So we, if we're saying we're Christians, we've got to be different. And yet, how many of us this past week dipped into or flirted with the things of the world and said, hey, it's okay because I'm forgiven. You know, we, we need to say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. Because by, the Bible says I must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Okay? Don't be like the Gentiles. We could add then, don't be like the Egyptians or Pharaoh. They're pictures of what? People in the world. Pagans. Unbelievers. Okay? So the big point here in these references in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 serve as a warning for Christians of the problem or the disease of a hard heart. Deal with it scripturally and wisely, seriously. Even for us as older Christians, we got a, you know, our congregation is not a young congregation. We got an older age, you know, average here. And a lot of us figure, hey, I, you know, I'm okay. I'm sliding along just fine. Be alert, my friend. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let's not flirt with the world. Let's not flirt with the false gods. Let's not take Scripture lightly. Let's take it seriously. The safest place to be, my friend, is what James chapter 4. Mark it down. I don't think it's in your notes. James chapter 4, verse 4 through 10. This is in, in regard, in light of... This message, the safest place to be is, is what this teaches. James pulls no punches and he says, you adulterous people. Who's he talking to? He's saying, don't, Christians, don't go there. Don't be adulterous with the things of the world. Don't you know that friendship with the world, another cause of hardening of heart, 
is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously for you? He yearns jealously, jealously for you. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And by the way, resist the devil, meaning resist his influences, his devices, his ways, his temptations, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well... I will probably walk off this afternoon thinking there's something I missed. (laughs) I want to thank you for your patience in sticking with this. This is no little, you know, skip through the park. This is something that I hope that all of you will recognize, you know, salvation is of the Lord and his will for your life is one that you need to submit to. I need to submit to his will. You know, when we see this, again, this picture of Pharaoh, obviously he didn't submit. He scoffed at it. And so let us welcome God's will. And my friend, if you've not been saved, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, here we go again. You need to be saved. You need to make a decision. You need to put your faith in Christ. All those kind of statements are there for a reason. You have to respond. Don't just be a churchgoer and think, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm patting myself on the back. I'm okay. We're all okay. No. Christ came for a purpose to rescue you from the bondage of sin that you deal with every day. And so, this is why then we come to a time like this, is to remember what Christ did for us on a monthly basis. We come to this time of communion. And so, if you've not come to faith in Christ, this is not something that you should participate in. It's for those who have submitted themselves and, and come to faith in Christ. We remember what He did, His body and His blood His body given over to be the sacrifice for our sins. His blood shed to be that which then covers us, redeems us. I'd like to have the the guys that are serving come. I know it's uh, getting a little 